Our sermon text for this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through to 18. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. I'll read the text and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together in his word. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we ask that our hearts would be soft. Father, that our hearts would be ready to receive the truth that you would instruct us this morning in the way of salvation and sanctification and the glory that is due to your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. I trust as we continue in our series in Matthew that you're beginning, hopefully, to feel somewhat at home in this gospel, growing in your awareness of how it is Matthew portrays Jesus and what it is Matthew likes to do as he recounts the history of our Savior. One thing that I'm sure you've picked up is that Matthew likes the Old Testament. He quotes often from the Old Testament scriptures, and that's because he's writing originally for a predominantly Jewish audience, trying to show them that their Savior, their Messiah, has indeed come. Their scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures. And so he goes to them as a means of making his case. And that's what he's been doing, text after text, week after week for us, throughout this prologue, the first two chapters of Matthew. Very soon we'll be into the ministry of Christ, beginning chapter 3. But not before, just a few more proofs from Matthew that Jesus is the Messiah. This morning, we see that Matthew quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, whom we read earlier this morning, as he narrates to us the reality of Herod killing the children in Bethlehem. So Herod remains a constant throughout this portion of Matthew's gospel. He was in view last week. He is here again this week and next week as well. He's a consistent feature in the narrative, but with wonderful irony, he's not the point. He's everywhere, and yet he's not the point. The point is Christ, and Matthew relates to us how Herod killed these children in Bethlehem in the hope of killing Jesus. And as he does so, Matthew finds a reason to quote from another Old Testament text, namely the text in Jeremiah. As you read it, I hope by now you would know at least to ask the question, why does Matthew do that? Matthew has options. As he relates this historical narrative to us, he could have said, Herod killed the children in Bethlehem 
and the mothers were weeping. He could have said that to us. He could have said, Matthew, uh, Herod killed the children in Bethlehem and there was, there was much mourning and grief when it happened and moved on. But what Matthew actually does as he narrates the, the killing of the children is to say, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah and then quote the text for us. So why does Matthew do that? And that's what we'll explore this morning and see that there are two connections that Matthew wants us to understand. The first is the exilic context of Jesus' day. The people were in exile just as much as the people were headed towards exile in Jeremiah's day. The most obvious point of contact that Matthew forges for us is that Jesus shows up to a people who are still ruled over by a foreign power, now the Romans, and more to the point, they are still spiritually as hard-hearted as the Jews were in Jeremiah's day. That's the initial point of contact. But then wonderfully, that dark backdrop allows another truth to come through, and that is the truth of the new covenant. The reason that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah is to show us that Jesus is the bringer of a new covenant. That just on the horizon, as so it was for Jeremiah, just on the horizon, there are new things on the way. There are new things coming that will utterly transform the hearts of those whom God saves. He shows us through this quotation in Jeremiah that a new covenant is coming. And that new covenant will utterly transform their worship. It will give them hearts that are fundamentally different from their hearts of flesh. It will give to them hearts that are inclined towards God, that have a genuine love for God and a love for his word. And it will announce the forgiveness of their sins. This is the truth of the new covenant. And to a Jewish reader... As Matthew wrote this and the the audience that originally received it read it, it would have constituted a proof that Jesus was the Messiah. That perhaps seems strange to us because we're so far removed from the original context. But to one of Matthew's original audience, it would have been a proof that Jesus was the Messiah. If they were genuinely in tune with Old Testament theology if they were genuinely reading the Old Testament scriptures and tracing God's promises to them, part of that would have been in Deuteronomy and then in Jeremiah, a promise of a new covenant. So as Matthew's Jewish readership had received the report of the children being killed and the fulfillment that it functions as regarding the text in Jeremiah, they would have looked at it and said, Jesus can be no one other than our Messiah. Here is another proof. Regardless of how we see that, it is for all of us a point by which we worship him. You're maybe not coming looking for proofs because you're persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Savior. But for all of us, it functions as another reason 
by which we worship the Lord Jesus. If I had asked you this morning as you had come in, why do you worship Jesus? I hope the answer would have been something like, how long do you have? Let me tell you all that he's done for me. Let me tell you all that he is to me. Let me tell you what the scriptures tell me about Christ and why I worship him. But I wonder, as you recounted your answer to me of why it is you worship the Lord Jesus, I wonder whether the new covenant would have been in your list. Whether you would have said to me, one of the reasons that I adore my Savior is because he is the bringer of a new covenant. Maybe not. It tends to be a truth that we don't fixate upon all that often. At least not in its, in its holistic reality for us. The constituent parts I trust that we know well. But the package that Jeremiah presents to us as the new covenant is not something we tend to think about all that often. As we were planning the service this week, Joel was looking through songs that we could sing that would lead us in our thinking about the new covenant. And he said to me, there aren't that many hymns that focus directly upon the reality of the new covenant. And likewise, as I was preparing this message, I was working through my theology books and I would go to the the subject index, just go straight to the back, look up New Covenant. Most of the time it wasn't there as an index entry. Now don't misunderstand me, the, the constituent parts are rehearsed by those books in a piecemeal fashion. But what we tend not to do such a good job at is to put it all together and to understand the reality of this relationship, this binding covenant that we have been brought into because of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that is what we focus our attention on this morning by way of this text in Matthew, and it becomes for us another reason for worshiping Christ. So may our worship increase this morning as we think about the reality that he brings a new covenant. Herod saw that he had been tricked. He'd been tricked by the wise men, and Matthew writes, he became furious, and he sent, and he killed. It's a very terse narrative. It's a very quick reporting of the events. Matthew doesn't draw out the details. He does not in any way attempt to bring about suspense on our part. He just tells us up front Directly, Herod killed the children. And then he talks about the mothers weeping that night. Bethlehem is a a small town. There aren't that many families there, but there was enough that the weeping overwhelmed the town of Bethlehem that night. The weeping could be heard as you approach Bethlehem. You can only imagine the noises that were coming out of that village as many children had been murdered. Unannounced, unprovoked, each family that had a young child two years or under who was a boy had now lost their son. And so the weeping is loud. The weeping is terrible. And Matthew says very plainly in verse 17, a scripture was fulfilled tonight. 
The words spoken by Jeremiah have been fulfilled in the killing of these children. So why does he do that? There are two points of connection. The first is to communicate the reality of their exilic state. They're in exile just as the original readers of Jeremiah's prophecy were. When you go to Jeremiah, it's a very, very difficult read. Jeremiah, more than any other prophet, gives a sustained articulation of the sins of Israel and the judgment that's coming. In the Lord's kindness, my teaching schedule this week to the students at the seminary had me teach them Jeremiah. I didn't plan this. It was just the grace of the Lord. So every Tuesday afternoon from 3 until 6, we just work through the Old Testament scriptures. It's a survey class, and every week we just move on to the next book. And for the larger books, we're spending two or three weeks in it. So this week, in the Lord's kindness, I was scheduled to teach for three hours on Jeremiah on Tuesday afternoon, and then I looked at my Bible and I said, and on Sunday I get to speak about Jeremiah. So he was making sure that uh, the week wasn't too busy. And I said to the students the same thing that I would say to you, which is Jeremiah is a very, very difficult read. Because chapter after chapter after chapter, more than any other prophet, Jeremiah speaks of the sin of the Israelites and the judgment that's coming. There is not a lot of hope given in the book of Jeremiah. And as he speaks about their sin, he comes at it from a number of different angles with different word pictures or metaphors. One of which, which begins in chapter 2 of Jeremiah and goes all the way through, is the metaphor of marriage. He says, God was your husband. You were his bride. And you've committed a twofold sin. You have not loved him, and you have loved another. That's two sins. It's not the same issue. Jeremiah, from chapter 2 onwards, talks about the the relationship that they have been in by way of a marriage. Most probably because it is the most intimate relationship, humanly speaking, that we can know. And Jeremiah says, you were to be his bride, and yet you failed to love him. He called you out of Egypt, he saved you, and you did not love him. And more than that, he says, you've chosen to love another. You've gone after idols, things made by human hands. That's what you gave your affection to, not the Lord. He then comes at their sin from another angle. He talks about it in terms of the word. Jeremiah is cast in the likeness of Moses. Here is another prophet like Moses. And he said, God gave you his word and it was to be good for you, but you broke it. You didn't obey it. And so now his word is coming to judge you and it's going to tear you down as a nation. Chapter after chapter after chapter of judgment. And then he starts to explain what that judgment is going to look like, both in Jeremiah and in Lamentations, most likely also written by Jeremiah. And when you read it and you take the words at face value, you see how horrific was the judgment that God was pleased to bring upon his people in response to their sin. In Lamentations, you read of the the exile off to Babylon. 
the Babylonians came and they took these people in waves. They chained them up and they took them away to Babylon. And then they built a siege around the city. And the way that siege warfare works is just to camp out. You cut off all avenues of water and fresh food into and out of that city. You're just surrounding them. And you just wait. And you wait. And the people inside are slowly dying. And so Lamentations talks in a very pointed way about the reality of young children fainting in the streets. It talks about the fact that mothers ate their young. And then, in the very next verse, you'll read a statement to the effect of it was the Lord's will to do this. You read this horrifying act of judgment and Jeremiah will not allow you to put the blame ultimately with the Babylonians. They were but the instrument that God used. Ultimately, God caused this. It is a sobering read because it makes you take stock of the sin in your life. Don't pursue a known sin. Deal with it. Because God will do just about anything to conform his people to holiness. He wrought an exile on his people that was terrifying in its details so as to discipline them. Now here's the interesting thing, a point that's often overlooked. When you go beyond Jeremiah and you get to the prophets that spoke after the exile, the post-exilic prophets, if you're a woman in this church, you need to go to the ladies' Bible study. It thrills my heart that the ladies would take on this portion of Scripture, so often overlooked. Your pastor is telling you to go to a Bible study. Go to the ladies' Bible study. Men, you can study it for yourselves. It's okay. And read the post-exilic prophets and note, several times throughout, the prophets say, we are still in bondage. They note that though they have returned physically from Babylon back to the land, they understand they are still in bondage. And what they most likely mean at an immediate level is that they are still in servitude to their captors. They haven't been released in a, in a final sense. They still have to pay taxes to their captors. They still have to report to them. So they say, we're no better off than we were when we were in exile. But moreover, they are spiritually still in bondage. The point is their exile has not ended spiritually. They have returned from the land, but their hearts are still as hard as they were when they went into exile. They have not undergone the radical heart transformation that is needed for them to show genuine love towards the Lord. That is the point. And then 400 years of silence before Jesus shows up. And Jesus walks into an exilic context. His ministry is to those who are spiritually still in exile. 
Physically, they're in their land. In like-mindedness to the Old Testament people, they are also in bondage to a foreign ruler, the Romans. So there's similarities there. But the, the salient point that you're to note is that their hearts are just as hard in Jesus' day to the people in Jeremiah's day. They need a radical heart transformation. The way in which sin is manifested in Jesus' day looks different to that in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah speaks about loving another, namely idols. Idolatry and high places were never an issue when they came back from the exile. The prevalent problems in Jesus' day is those that we see exhibited by the Pharisees. This hypocrisy. This laying the law on people's shoulders is a burden that crushes them. And the Pharisees parade with much pride their obedience to the law, not understanding that it is killing them. It's a different kind of sin, but the root issue is the same. Your hearts are not inclined towards God. And so, the immediate point of contact between the killing of the children in in Jesus' day and the loss of the people in Jeremiah's day is that nothing has changed. The context is exactly the same. If we fast forward 2,000 years, we might say, and still nothing has changed. You look around you and we see a society in bondage to sin. A society who, in many respects, is very spiritual. Some years ago, I read a book entitled Bad Religion, subtitled How America Became a Nation of Heretics. And Ross Douthat, the author, says early on in the book, the Christian church enjoyed its golden era in America in around about the 1950s, the post-war era. That's when everyone went to church. That was when there was a high level of confessional religion in America. But then, over time, the realities of the war faded in our collective memory, and people started getting very comfortable, and so numbers dwindled. Churches shrunk, and people weren't so ready to run to church anymore. And an observation that he makes is that America got no less spiritual. It's not that we're less spiritual today than previous generations, but that we're looking for answers in different places. All manner of religions, all manner of of ways of thought that have come up in society at large, cloaking the issue, hiding the real issue. You can speak spiritual things and sound very religious, but the x-ray, the spiritual x-ray of your heart will say you are not one that loves God. And the further that we move away from a confessional love towards God, the harder society gets as a whole. This is true on an individual level. The longer somebody lives without faith in Christ, the harder their heart gets. You pray that your children are saved and pray that the Lord would save them young. 
Because the longer someone lives without faith in Christ, the longer and the harder their heart gets. It is also true on a societal level. Society is getting harder and harder towards the true things of God. Though there may be lots of spiritual talk, at a societal level, we are very, very hard towards God. Many years ago, and it it does seem like a lifetime ago now, we lived in Scotland in the city of Glasgow. We moved there when we had just had our first baby. She was six weeks old, and the Navy called me and said, you're sailing in two days, move. (laughs) So I packed my bag and I went, and Laura moved our life up to Glasgow with a newborn baby in her arms. And now you get an impression of just what a strong woman my wife is. I came back from the submarine. I didn't know where we lived. (laughs) I didn't have a cell phone, and I was driving around Glasgow about one in the morning trying to find some supposed house that was now mine. We spent the next three years in that city, and if you go to visit Glasgow, what you'll notice is what a strong Christian heritage it has. It's true of many cities in the UK, of course. If you walk around Glasgow, there are lots of evidences of its Christian heritage. One evidence that you would have found if you had visited some time ago is the slogan that was adopted by the city. You'd have to go there some time ago, and you would have heard people say, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of thy word, And the praising of thy name. That was the slogan of the city. And it was written everywhere. Let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of thy word and by the praising of thy name. If you go today and you ask anyone, what's the slogan of this city? They would say, the slogan of this city is let Glasgow flourish. That's it. Some time ago now, somebody thought it would be wise to shorten down that slogan. Because we don't want anything to do with the preaching of God's word or the praising of his name. So simply let Glasgow flourish. And what people don't understand is no city would ever flourish without a true acknowledgement of God. Our state is no better than Matthew's and is no better than Jeremiah's. And what that does is it it sets up a very dark backdrop for us to consider the wonderful, glorious truth that then arises from this quotation, namely that Jesus is bringing a new covenant. You see, you have to have that backdrop, that dark backdrop, in order to understand the wonderful truths of the new covenant, in order to to appreciate them and see that they're needed. You can't see Jesus as a Savior until you acknowledge your sin. If you don't think you have any sin, you have no need for a Savior. And one of the reasons Jeremiah chapter after chapter gives us all of this sin and judgment is so that when you get to chapter 31, the glory of the new covenant shines. 
And so this now is the second reason that he makes this quotation. And note, you have to understand something more is intended than a simple historical correspondence. He is not saying the weeping in Bethlehem sounded like the weeping in Israel, and that's the sum total of what I mean by the scriptures being fulfilled. He has to mean more than that, simply because he uses, in verse 17, fulfillment language. That tells us there is something about the original text that was reaching forward beyond the weeping of the exiles. The original text, in some way, is anticipating something yet future that Matthew says finds its resting point in the arrival of Jesus. So what is that something? As we've been working through all of these Old Testament texts, one thing I've tried to labor is that you can't understand them unless you're willing to go back to the original context and spend some time there. It's always the case that the New Testament author is pulling on more than simply the text quoted. He's always pulling on a theological context, and so you need to be at home with it to know the nature of the fulfillment. So turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. We read it earlier this morning. I want to point out a few things to you now so that we can better understand how this weeping in Matthew's day was in some way a fulfillment of the words spoken by Jeremiah. The quotation itself is verse 15 and only verse 15. A voice heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But paying attention to the broader theological context, look just at the next verse. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears because there's a reward. There is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of their enemy. There is hope for your future. You see how when you go back to the original context and you read just one verse beyond the quotation, immediately the landscape starts to change. And you realize that Matthew saying, now these words have been fulfilled, are fulfillments not ultimately of judgment. Immediately judgment. Ultimately, hope. When Matthew quotes from Jeremiah in chapter 2, what he intends for us to see is immediate judgment, immediate bad news, but ultimately hope. We know that the hope to which Jeremiah is referring is not found in the physical return from the land. We've spoken about that already this morning. Their physical return from Babylon to their land didn't change anything about their heart. So that's not the final resting place of these words. But if you look down towards the end of the chapter, we find the theological truths that come with their return. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and the house of Judah. There is the theological good news. There is a new covenant on the way, says Jeremiah. The ultimate hope of the exiles is not found in their immediate return to the land, but is found one day when God instills in them new hearts as part of a new covenant. He says, it's not like the covenant I made with their fathers, referring to the Mosaic covenant. It's not like that covenant. That covenant was good for them. The the covenant hadn't failed. They had failed. That covenant was good for them in that God had given them a law by which they were to flourish in their relationship with him. He had written that law on tablets of stone for them to observe. But Jeremiah says throughout his book, you had written on your heart your sin. He's playing with the imagery of the Mosaic Covenant there. He says, God gave you the good law for you on tablets of stone. But with an instrument of iron, you etched into your heart the reality of your sin. So that covenant hadn't done what it was intended to do. So it's not like that covenant, Jeremiah says. This new covenant is one that will be affected within your hearts. The law will not be on tablets of stone, says Jeremiah. The new covenant reality is that it will be in your hearts. He goes on to say, God will be your God. You will be his people, speaking about relational realities. God had always desired that you would be his people. He had saved you from Egypt and brought you into the land, but you had worshipped other things. But when the new covenant comes, he will be your God. Meaning you will have a desire in your heart towards him in a way that you have not had thus far. And all of this is effected, last verse 34, because your sins will be forgiven. Look at that last sentence. For you have got to pay attention to the small words in your Bible. Because so often they're the means by which the argument is made. And if you gloss over them, you lose the logical relationship. All of these wonderful truths about a new heart inclined towards God and towards his law are only made possible for because your sins have been dealt with. And now that your sins have been dealt with, a new relationship is forged between you and your God. And though Jeremiah doesn't speak here in an overt manner about Jesus Christ, we understand from the broader theological context, that the way in which the sins are forgiven is by virtue of the death of Jesus Christ. That is what Matthew is speaking of when he says the weeping in Bethlehem has found a resting point. He is announcing in a very subtle manner That Jesus is the bringer of this new covenant. He's heralding yet another facet to Jesus' ministry. Think in just two chapters all that we've taken in about Christ. 
So much that Matthew is able to accomplish in two chapters of his gospel, showcasing the glory of Christ. And as he comes towards the end of his prologue, he finds another thing to bring to us. And he says, one more thing you should know about this man. He is the bringer of the new covenant. And for that reason, you worship him. Now again, this would have been incredibly meaningful for any Jew truly tracking with the redemptive plan of God as it was given in the Old Testament scriptures. For you and I today, fast forward 2,000 years from Matthew's writing. I want you to consider just how wonderful the new covenant is for us. These words in Jeremiah were spoken for the benefit of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, and they will come to pass for them. They have not come to pass yet for the nation of Israel, but one day, as Zechariah prophecies, they will look on him who they have pierced, and they will acknowledge their king, and then there will be a salvation for the Jewish people. One of the wonders of the gospel is that the Gentiles enjoy new covenant realities today. These words were spoken originally for Israel. He doesn't mention here the Gentiles. Then you get to Matthew's gospel and he announces Jesus is the bringer of the new covenant. And as you trace with New Testament theology, you understand that God in his wisdom allows Gentiles to partake of the new covenant now. So think with me just by way of application about the peculiar and the wonderful nature of the new covenant for us. As we think now about our belonging to a new covenant, by way of application, ponder the peculiar and wonderful nature of the new covenant for us. It's peculiar because the second that you're brought into the new covenant, you start behaving in a way that is very strange to the world that is watching. When you get brought into the new covenant, God gives you a real desire to honor him. When he saves you, he does heart surgery on you so that you have a real, genuine desire to read his word. These are new covenant realities. And they are utterly foreign to the world. So that on a Monday morning, when your work colleagues say, what did you do this weekend? You're not ashamed to say, I went to church to worship God. And you feel the awkwardness in the room immediately. And they, they, they maybe are brave enough to say, so what do you do at church? You say, well, we sing. You sing a song. We sing five or six, actually, and I really enjoy it. What else do you do? Well, for about an hour, we 
read the Bible and someone teaches us. You mean the, the Bible? Yeah, they, we, we read the Bible and, and it's really good. We love it. Uh, um, t- tell me about other days in the week. Let's move on from Sunday. What, what else do you do in your week? Well, you know, when I could, when I could be asleep, actually forsake some time asleep and I get up, you get up early. Okay, why, why do you do that? To walk the dog? No, I, I do it to, to read my Bible. When do you do that? Well, I try and do it every day. So you get up before you have to, before your routine of, of work and chores dictate. You get up early and deprive yourself of some sleep so as to give more attention to that book that the world laughs at and ridicules. I do, and I really look forward to it. So what else do you do? Well, you know, during the week, we try and just open up our home and we, we have folks around from church to spend more time with them. What do you talk about? Well, we, we talk about the Bible. We talk about what God is teaching us and what we're learning. Is there anything else? Well, you know, eventually the week, passes by pretty quickly and then Sunday comes around again and I've made sure I've cleared everything to be at church in the morning and in the evening to do it all over again. This is very normal to us. It is entirely strange to a watching world. And you don't do these things unless you're a new covenant believer because you don't have those impulses in your heart. It is not natural for somebody to want to be in this book. That is supernatural. It's not natural for people to want to give up a day of rest so as to serve one another in the local church. That is an out-of-this-world inclination that is functioning in your hearts. It's not natural to deny yourself for the benefit of others that they might see more of the truth in your life and through His words. That is something that God has put in your heart. It's a new covenant impulse. And that is the peculiar nature, and it is at the same time the wonderful nature of being a new covenant believer. How so? I know that many of you come on a Sunday morning feeling very much your inadequacies as a Christian. Many of you will come and perhaps you're embarrassed that the last time you opened this book was the previous Sunday. For many of you, you feel very inadequate when you hear folks talk about their prayer life and that you know for you, you have prayed this week just when other people have been present at mealtimes. And you feel inadequate. I know that some will come here this week feeling inadequate as a Christian because you're not blessing other people in the way that Christians are sent to bless others. You're not opening up your home for hospitality. You're not serving others throughout the week and you feel that inadequacy. And I rejoice that you have such feelings Because they are evidence that you are a new covenant believer. 
Someone who's not part of the new covenant doesn't feel any sense of having failed this week. They're very at home with their lack of Bible reading. They're very at home with their lack of prayer. They're very at home with their selfishness. It's the believer, the Christian, that arrives and says, my Bible reading's not where I ought, want it to be. And I say, praise God, he's doing something in your heart. Can you see how you've got a desire to honor him? Now, it's not where it ought to be, I agree, and I want to help you. I want to take you by the hand or pair you up with someone else and help you get to a point where you're pursuing God through his word and prayer and you're pursuing fellowship each and every week as a norm for your life. But I praise God that you feel that way. What concerns me is when you don't, the fact that you feel the inadequacy is testimony that God has given you a new heart. When I sit down in a counseling scenario, one of the first things I'll say is I am greatly encouraged that we're sat here today. That you would bring this sin into the light. That you would bring it into the open and to me and that you would seek help acknowledging your life is not where it ought to be as a Christian. That is a great encouragement to me. My fear is when the sin gets hidden, tucked away. Now I'm probing what's going on on a heart level that you would think that that's okay. But when you bring it into the light, I agree, things aren't where they ought to be. But there is something going on in your heart that is evidence that the new covenant is a reality for you. That is the wonderful thing about the peculiar nature of this covenant. The wonderful thing about the reality of the new covenant is that each and every time you feel an impulse in your heart towards God's word, towards God himself, towards believers in Christ, that is a little signal in your life that one day you will be part of of a great congregation worshiping Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. The inclinations that God has given you that seem so everyday for Christians come from a different world and they indicate to you that one day you will be with Christ worshiping him in the new heavens and the new earth. You are but the first fruits of the work that Christ is doing to make all things new. And for that reason, we should worship Christ. Pray with me to close. Father, we praise you this morning for the glory of the new covenant. We see, as Matthew quotes Jeremiah, the desperate reality of people in spiritual exile. It was true of those in Jeremiah's day. It was true of those in Jesus's day. It is true of people today, lost and estranged from you. And we praise you that the fulfillment of this scripture doesn't rest at verse 15 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. That's not the final resting point. 
but immediately goes on to speak of hope, of a future that you have for your people Israel. And that hope is made plain as you speak about a new covenant. And we gather today in awe of your grace towards us. Those words originally spoken to Israel and yet you have been gracious to us so as to bring us in now to be part of the new covenant. It is true for us today that we are new covenant believers. And that means you have given us new hearts. Heart surgery has taken place as you've saved us. We're not the people that we once were. We have new hearts. And though we still sin and though our lives may not be where they ought to be, there are inclinations in our hearts. There are pulses within our hearts that are not normal, that are not of this world. They are inclinations towards you and towards your word. And Father, I pray that this morning you would give us clarity to see the significance of those inclinations. Though our lives are not where they ought to be, the inclinations testify to your work in our lives. They testify that we are indeed a new creation. And they testify that on the final day we will be with Christ, enjoying the new heavens and the new earth as new covenant believers. We commit ourselves, our thinking, the meditations of our hearts to you and ask that this would be true for us as we go about our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.